I just have to say again, he is for you. Amen. Amen. Reading today from Mark chapter 5, verse 1 onwards. Jesus heals a man with a demon. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, the, had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. For those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Beautiful. Thanks, Jeff. You had the easy part, reading it out. Now I've got my work cut out for me. Preaching on Jesus versus the demons. Um, So welcome to church. (laughs) If you're new or it's your first time ever in church or if you're somehow watching this online, you've picked an absolute doozy. Uh, You've walked right into the middle of our 16-part series on the book of Mark and we are in, I think this is week Six, and uh, we're taking our time to meander through Mark's biography of Jesus. And among all the stories that we have heard along the way so far today, this one takes the cake for its freakishness, does it not? Now, if the Bible was arranged like a video store, now kids, I need to tell you about a video store. There used to be an actual thing that you'd go to. And it was like a Netflix library, but in person. And if the Bible was arranged like a video store, this story would belong in the B-grade horror section of the movie store, alongside titles like I Know What You Did Last Summer, The Blair Witch Project, or The Notebook. (laughs) For some people, um, as you hear this story of a man possessed by a demon and all of the, you know, just the freakiest thing that happens with them going into pigs and the pigs drowning. You know, you could, you could be wondering, you know, did that gear really happen? Or does that still happen today? Is, is all of that spiritual stuff even a thing? Because it's too far-fetched for me. Maybe you're one of those kind of people. I'd rather just ignore it, get on with your life and deal with what is seen and observable and touchable or provable by science, which um, it's not hard for us to do that as people living downstream from the Enlightenment. That's kind of how we're wired. Prove it to me. If we can't see it proven, we have a difficult time understanding of it. 
And it's just kind of how we're wired or, wired. or maybe you hear this story of wild, zany, crazy, demonic activity, and you're like, I feel seen. You know, this, is, this stuff's going on around me all of the time. Maybe you have a dispossession, a disposition, rather, to um, seeing a demon on every cereal box or, or on every TV ad or under every rock on God's good earth. C.S. Lewis speaks with wisdom to this, as only C.S. Lewis can do. Well, he's not the only wise bloke, but he's a pretty wise bloke. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is into disbelief in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. A total denial of demonic influence in our world from which all evil stems is an error. Equally, having an over-hyperactive spiritual radar that is in constant overdrive, seeking out every cough and fart of the devil is also not a spiritually mature, healthy place to live from. Now, this story that we're looking at today demonstrates what Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.12, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities, against the spiritual forces of evil that are at work, not in what is just seen and observed, but in what is unseen, in the spiritual heavenly realms. But we aren't to get bogged down there, albeit that that's the truth. It is also a story that shouts from the rooftops, or as in this case, the clifftops, that Jesus is the one the light that shines in the darkness, that the darkness cannot comprehend, nor can the darkness overcome him. This story is a testimony among a catalogue of many about Jesus as was prophesied him, that he will take evil and he takes evil and he turns all that is evil into a measly little footstool on which he reclines and he places his feet. And so before you go running out the door, I want to assure you that though this story is both true and to some degree unsettling, it most impressively reveals to us again the truth that Mark has been spilling so much ink to remind us that Jesus is the one who has all of the authority over evil and for those who are in Christ, there is no need to fear. Let's pray before we dive further into this. Father, we thank you that that is the truth, that you have the authority over all things on heaven, on earth, in all things. And Father, your presence with, he, with us here today puts us at ease. Knowing, Lord God, that in your love there is no fear, no need to fear, that you drive out fear. And so, Father, in the, the nooks and crannies of our hearts, Lord, where, where doubts and fears may be bubbling up, Father, I ask that your presence here by your Holy Spirit would, would, would remove that fear, would do away with it in Jesus' name, that we would know your peace. Amen. So we have this uh, we're going to do the first 16 verses for the sake of time um, today. Uh, the very first thing we kick off with is they came to the other side of the sea. We're getting a little bit geographical here and we understand that um, from last week, this is the other side of the sea in which the storm had just been raging. If you are here last week, Jen preached a wonderful message on God's, on Jesus' power um, and looking at when the disciples are in the boat and they're in the middle of the storm and they're like, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to drown? And Jesus gets up and he says to the waves, be still. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus calmed the chaos of the storm and they get to the other side of the sea. And this is where they are landing, albeit maybe still a little bit green in the face, got their sea legs on. But the, ver the first detail Mark gives us in verse 1 is that they landed on the beach in the country of the Gerasenes. Now, this, this beach lay on the eastern banks of the Sea of Galilee. They were on the western side. Now, they've moved over onto the eastern side of the beach of the Sea of Galilee. And there's much conjecture um, about where this exact location and encounter took place. Because Mark mentions the Gerasenes, 
Matthew and Luke, in their biographies, they suggest um, the Gergesenes and the Gadarenes, respectively. There's three different places that are all mentioned. But it is widely accepted, though, that where Jesus and the disciples landed their boat was in a town called Gerasa, which is today known as the town of Cursa. And this is where it was. Quite beautiful. Hang on, he's up there, son. Go back to the other one, would you? You follow when I say, hey? And in my study this week, I found that a few kilometres west of this location is an incredibly sacred site. Uh, not this one. Uh, picture two. Oh. <laughs> I found, I was on Google Maps doing my research, right? Just making sure we're getting everything right. And this place came up, the Hanak Tom Bakery Pizza. And I'm like, no way, how good is this? And so um, I apologise, this is kind of where we're ending today <laughs> on a pizza. And the next one, gee, the next one looks good as well. This is just, oh, look at those Danishes, sprinkling of apples and, oh my goodness. So if we ever do a trip church excursion to the Holy Land, we need to get to the Hanak Tom Bakery for some bakery pizza and Danishes. When Jesus stepped out of the boat, verse 2, he made a beeline for the bakery. No, he didn't. Uh, when he stepped out of the boat, it's important for us to recognize this geographically, that Jesus stepped onto Gentile land. I mean, this was the moon landing before the actual moon landing. This was the original one small step for man out of this boat was, in fact, one giant leap for mankind. This was the first time recorded in the Gospels that Jesus had left Jewish territory. He left the shores of his own people, his own place, his own culture, and he entered Gentile territory. Gerasa, where they hauled their boat onto the beach, was a Greek city which made up part of the Decapolis. The Decapolis being a conglomeration of 10 cities making up the Roman territory. It was a place of different people. It was a place of vastly different culture. A place where people held different worldviews, different ways of living, of different ways of government, different ways of trading. It had better pizza. And it's not unfair to say that this was opposition territory and here is Jesus getting out of the boat, moving in behind enemy lines. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus spent a lot of time, in fact, walking in foreign territory. He visited the other cities of the Decapolis like Scythopolis, Philadelphia, Hippos, Pella, Gadara, Gerasa and others. And ministry to the Gentiles, and this is important to remember, to what was called or sometimes still can be the great unwashed, was not an activity that was placed on hold until Paul entered the story in Acts. Sometimes we get this picture of Jesus just being the, the agitator in Jewish uh, boundaries and in Jewish custom, in Jewish um, uh, realms of all, of all of life. But Jesus' decision to cross the Sea of Galilee was an intentional journey to announce to the world that he and his kingdom were not confined nor defined by the parameters of Jewish territory, history, culture or religion. I mean, it was one thing for Jesus to be incarnate, as in God in the flesh, in his own people, among his own. But it tells us something so radical about God that he would become incarnate, literally placing his feet in the sand and in a land among people who were not like him. And in our followership of Jesus, one of the most powerful reminders for us in the scriptures is that the kingdom of God is not just for people like you and me. I mean, this is especially good news in a world that is more divided than ever. I mean, the power of Jesus to calm the storm on the sea that they just crossed was undoubtedly miraculous. But Jesus' intentionality to cross barriers of division to show love. That's rewriting the book, the rule book of what power and true love 
looks like. Here is Jesus not just crossing a sea through a storm. Here is Jesus crossing barriers that divide, barriers that separate, barriers that keep people disparate, and he is doing a new thing. So what does this have to do with Jesus and demons, you might ask? You know, as we have already seen in Jesus' ministry, he was confronted with powers of evil. This wasn't the first time in the foreign land. You know, we know in Mark chapter 1 and in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus has had interactions with evil spirits in synagogues of all places. Now we see in Scripture that Jesus is again confronted with the powers of evil, this time in a place among people who were not his own. What has not changed is that it's love that disarms the power of evil in every setting. Whether it was back in Jerusalem, whether it was back in his hometown of Nazareth, or whether it is here on the shores of Gerasa, facing this unwildly kind of crazy situation, that it is love that disarms the power of evil despite the place we find ourselves. Now, the powers of evil and demonic influence are not reserved for all of the others out there. You know, sometimes I think maybe we think that we aren't evil, it's all the other people who are evil. Maybe, you know, demonic influences for people who are doing crazy, you know, weird spiritual ritual things out there. But evil can be seen in small ways, even in my life. It can be seen in big ways. It can be seen at an individual level, at a societal level. You know, evil can be seen at a, at a local level. It can be seen at a global level. It can influence personal behavior and thinking all the way through to manifesting in global wars and global sickness and violence. You know, evil can manifest its way, you know, in humanitarian injustice of the most horrific of scales. Yet what we see was true of evil in Jesus' time is still true today. That it is love that disarms the power of all evil. Mark continues and he says, As soon as Jesus set foot on the sand, immediately there met him out of the tombs. A man with an unclean spirit. And we'll go to that picture of the tombs. I think it's number four there, Josh. Thanks, mate. I mean, the tombs were a gnarly, gnarly place. In fact, from a Jewish perspective, a tomb was a no-go zone. Hanging out at places like this, it is unclean. To visit there, you would be deemed ceremonially unclean. To be near them would render you unwelcome again among those who were considered holy. Again, Mark is doubling down on Jesus' disregard for the rules for the sake of love. I mean, he's, he's, just, he's just awesome, isn't he? That Jesus would, he would disregard what was expected of him so that he could show love. That the Lord would move into the realms of death to bring life. I mean, this is the heart of the good news. I mean, this story reeks of the power of death being usurped by the power of resurrection. I mean, when we have eyes to see and read the scripture backwards through the work of Christ on the cross, we see the gospel come alive through the entirety of the word of God, no less in this story. And verses 3 to 5 here describe the extent to which this man was oppressed by this evil spirit and the physical, emotional, spiritual and social distress that this man was experiencing. I mean, living among those tombs, isolated, completely withdrawn from community, rejected by all who were his family, all that he worked alongside, played alongside, grew up alongside. This man was living in total isolation. I mean, Luke does tell us that there was another um, man as well, demon-possessed um, there. So, but I can't imagine that they were having Bible study on Tuesday nights together. I mean, this was a place of desperate loneliness. I mean, this guy's possession by this demon it gave him this incredible sense of strength, false strength though, that he'd been bound before by chains and by shackles and the strength of this man, he was able to take those chains and like a piece of cotton, just 
twang and break this thing, nothing could hold him down. There was nobody in all of the land, no man, no woman, no, no anything that could subdue the strength of this man. Night and day among the tombs, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, this man, such was the torment he experienced, was crying out day and night that he would take stones and he would physically scar and cut his body. I mean, this man was a social outcast, physically harming himself, living in torn clothes, or as Luke tells us, he was naked. R.C. Sproul notes on his condition that he was a wretched man, tormented day and night by the concentrated powers of hell. I mean, the language that Mark uses to describe this man is akin to that of a wild animal, completely untamable, a ferocious man. And as Jesus placed his foot on the beach, this guy, like a moth to a light, was drawn to Jesus. And often what Jesus doesn't do is often just as telling as what he did do. What we notice about Jesus in this interaction is that he doesn't freak out. In the gnarliness of this encounter, he doesn't say to the guys, well, this is a bit much. Let's get out of here. He doesn't have a rush of blood to the head and he doesn't puff his chest out and, and shape up for a stoush with this guy. Nor does Jesus stand there in complete bewilderment, frozen, unsure what to do. You know, we have those responses. We have the fight, the flight, or the freeze response when it comes to difficult things, no less probably in a situation like this. I'm not sure which one I would do. But Jesus, he didn't fight, he didn't flight, he didn't freeze. Jesus has this most amazing way of facing this man. He met him face to face with a sense of calm, not freaking out, not anxious about this man, not anxious about what this man could do to Jesus because this guy could have done some pretty out there crazy things to Jesus and his disciples given the way that Mark has described him to us. And Jesus faced this man with a deep confidence knowing who he was and what he was there to do and Jesus being confident of these things that enabled him to respond to this wild and unruly man with patience, with kindness, with compassion, and with love. And Jesus is the personification of peace. And we see that in this story. And I want to, by way of encouraging you, as in to put courage into you, that when we see Jesus do this in the most horrific, horrific of circumstances, that Jesus is in your life now, the personification of peace, that in the midst of all of the arduous things that you wrestle with, all of the difficult life situations that we walk through or perhaps are in right now, that the presence of God is always with us to minister his peace to our hearts. And I know if it's true for this demon-possessed man of which evil had taken hold, and I know this to be true for my life and for yours, that at times evil takes hold in small ways, in medium-sized ways, sometimes in really big ways. But the truth of the Scripture to us this morning is that Jesus is peace, that his promise is peace. He is the Prince of Peace, and into the midst of all of the turmoil... Jesus brings peace where there is chaos. And when he saw Jesus from afar, verse 6, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. I'll stop there for a sec. One theologian I listened to on this passage notes that uh, in this we can see the humanity of this man. He saw, he ran, he fell, he cried. Saw, ran, fell, cried. These are... These are words of desperation and in one sense the demons are in full control of this man causing him unending distress. Not though to the point though that this man was no longer containing 
any semblance of the image of God in him. That this most wretched man, as bedraggled and unbecoming as he was, was still a man made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And for us, even the most horrible of people we encounter, people who we may meet entrapped in the worst or most wretched of ways, we must remember that they too are made in the image of God. They may have defaced themselves, they might have self-harmed, they may have made disastrous decisions over and over, and those decisions may have compounded in their life to make for a difficult, if not horrific, existence for themselves, perhaps for other people as well. But in Jesus' interaction with this man, we need to be reminded that though that be the case, all people are still made in God's image, children created, known and loved by God, not without hope of renewal, not without hope of Jesus restoring them to a place of wholeness. And it's probably helpful for us just to dive in for a very short overview of some demonology before we, to understand what has gotten into this guy before we carry on too much. Because I don't think we talk about this enough. And hey, why not now when we're talking about Jesus versus the demons? And the Bible talks about Satan and the demonic and how this exists in the world. The Bible teaches that Satan and his demons are real, that he is the enemy, that they are the enemy and they hate you and they want the worst for you. John writes of the enemy's intentions for your life and that is to seek, to kill and to destroy. Through scripture, Satan is referred to by various names. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, he is referred to as Hasatan, which is where it gets transliterated into Satanos, which in English we get Satan, which means the accuser. He is the one who goes against you. His role in Scripture is like that of a prosecutor whose job it is to go before God and to say they are guilty. That's, that's what we see in the biblical narrative. He is the accuser, the father of lies, the one that comes before us and says, you are guilty. And goes to God, they're guilty. But in the New Testament, we see the word devil and similarly it means accuser or slanderer. And the Bible uses the term Lucifer, which is a Latin term that means morning star. What? The devil called morning star? There's a passage in Isaiah 14 that talks about him being the day star or the sun of the morning, meaning that he is the brightest one, the one who shines most brightly. It's commonly held, though, that he was uh, the head of all of the angels. Some even suggest that uh, Lucifer was the worship leader in heaven. And as they were bringing worship to God, something rose up within him pridefully so, going, oh, I deserve some of that glory, surely. Why are we all just worshipping this one God? Surely I, I can have some of this worship for myself as well. And God didn't take too kindly towards this, and God cast him out of heaven with a third of all of the angels, and they became demons. And once he got the boot from heaven, and after the concussion cleared from his head from the thud of the thunderous lightning bolt that sent him down to earth had passed, he realised he couldn't take the throne of God. So he turned his sights to overpowering God another way, through tempting God's children to abandon him and his ways. And throughout the biblical record, we come to see that Satan and his demons are active in the world to that end that they know they can't take God's throne. But they can get in our ears, tempting us to abandon God and his ways. And Satan throughout Scripture is interchangeably called the ruler or prince of this world or prince of the air or God of this world, meaning that Satan has set himself up as a ruler, as a prince, as a little G God, as an authority in opposition to God's true and righteous authority. It's a lot, right? You might be thinking, but isn't Jesus Lord over all? Yes, he is. 
He absolutely is. See, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, as in when Jesus came, he brought the kingdom of God to earth from heaven, and the kingdom of God began to be established on earth as it is in heaven. But the kingdom has not been consummated yet. The kingdom of God has not come in its fullness yet. But what is clear that in light now of knowing that the enemy is at work among us, we look around and we see evil running rampant in the world. It is this enemy, the opposer of souls, the accuser, the father of lies, the prideful resistance of God that has taken over the man in this story, causing him so much torment. We don't know why or how this man ended up in the state he was. But it's clear that in light of how vile the devil is, it's no wonder that this man was so isolated, that he was so bedraggled, that he was so tormented. Now, the enemy is a thief. He is a thug. He is a destroyer of all that is right. He is a robber of all truth. He's a robber of all things beautiful. He is a thief of all things that are right. And we see the devil's ploys outplay in this man as he came shouting, What do you have to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you. By God, do not torment me. Now, these are words of fearful desperation and appeal to mercy in light of who Jesus is and the destiny these demons knew was reserved for them. And if we break this down, there are three ploys here that the demons use to show us their hand. What do you want with me? They cried out. I mean, these are words of disassociation. And this is the demon saying to Jesus, nothing to see here. Jesus, mind your own business. You have no business with me and I have no business with you. Go away and let me be. I mean, this was a posture of defensive hostility, of a, a, a willful disengagement from another. A way of saying, we have nothing in common, leave me alone. And as I sat thinking about this, I wondered, do, do, I, do I do that in my interpersonal relationships? Disassociate myself from people? He cries out, Jesus, son of the most high God. I mean, this demon was using what they say is a claim to some special knowledge. It's an overt power tactic used to elevate self over another. It's a way of saying, I know something about this topic over and above what you know. Therefore, this conversation is null and void. And again, I stop and I, I thought, of, have I ever done that? You know, have I ever had a claim to some special knowledge by virtue of what I've read or what I've studied? I've gone, I know more about this than you. So get back in your place, would you? I mean, I've done it in arguments before. I mean, it's interesting to note how accurately the demons recognised Jesus in this as well. And we see in these demons that they know who Jesus is. They know that he is the Lord of all. As we said, Mark 1 and 3, we saw the same thing. This highlights the difference between knowing about Jesus, about knowing Jesus, and about following Jesus. Because from the scripture, we can see that there most certainly is a difference in God's name, he, he continued on, the demons declare, which is somewhat ironic given uh, who the demons are talking to. And in philosophy, they call this a fallacious appeal to authority. It's a big kind of term. I learned that this week, by the way. Um, I'm not a philosopher, nor I've studied it, but I did learn that this week. A fallacious appeal to authority. It's where we do this in an argument. So-and-so says this, so it must be true. We, 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 we appeal to um, our Instagram influences, we appeal to um, you know, the, the our online things that we love to go and read, we appeal to someone who is smarter than us and we use their name so the demons here are saying, in God's name don't torment us he's appealing to this higher sense of authority but just because they said it, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't but this should be judged on the value of what they've said, not on the value of our ability to appeal to the thoughts of another. 
And here the demons appeal to God himself. And sometimes I do that as well. And then we've got this last cry. Their woeful petition. Don't torture me. Luke's account recalls them saying, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? And this is because the demons know that in the end they're going to be thrown into the abyss, into the lake of fire. They know that. They know what is coming. And so I look at these interpersonal ways that this demon is working with Jesus here and I wonder if in the way that this interaction happens that there is some way a mirror held up to my own life. I mean, not to suggest that I am demon-possessed nor are you by any measure, but to highlight the fact that evil isn't always in the big. It's not always in the horrific. It's not always in the traumatic. That evil exists in our world and influences our lives at times, even in the most garden variety of ways. Perhaps in the way that I disengage from others. Perhaps in the way that I become defensive. Perhaps in the way that I'll appeal to a higher authority than God and try and make an argument. I'm not quite sure, but just maybe. Just maybe. In all of this, the demon was responding to Jesus saying in verse 8, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. I mean, notice the juxtaposition that Mark highlights. The demons were shouting, but Jesus was speaking. A mate of mine once warned, beware of anyone who shouts prayer because God is neither impressed nor, as it turns out, is he deaf. Just by shouting, it doesn't make your position any stronger. Jesus asked him, what is your name? What is your name? And he replied, I don't know what voice you hear the demons speak in when you read the scripture. I'm not going to try and put one on, but the response is, my name is Legion, for we are many. I mean, it's a fascinating question that Jesus asks, what is your name? He sees this wild, unruly, ferocious man Hey, come out of him, evil. Just come out. Just come on, come on out. You don't belong. Come on out. And he says, what is your name? As if Jesus wasn't fully aware that the name of this marauding evil within this man was none other than the evil who was present when Jesus was there to see the father roost his boot up the devil's bum and send him packing from the heavenly realms. Jesus need not have interrogated this evil spirit to send it on its way. Jesus asked the man his name, not the devil. Interesting. He asked the man his name, not because he didn't know it, but because this whole encounter is wrapped up in the purpose of bringing this man back to a sense of his true identity. An identity that had been stolen and manipulated by the demon. Out of love, Jesus inquired of him. I mean, perhaps this was even a prophetic gesture asking what his name to bring forward the healing of the coming destiny that he was going to receive. He was a child of God, loved, cherished and chosen. Called and purposed to know God and to walk in the light of his salvation. And we know that the man didn't just snap out of it and say, Jesus, great question. My name's Jono. Can you please deal with these demons that are within me? We know he didn't do that. The response Jesus garnered from this question was not from the man, but from the demons. My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a legion was a military term that referred to the size of a section of an army, considered to be about 5,400 foot soldiers, plus then two or 300 auxilia on top of that. And this wasn't to say that there was 5,700 demons literally living in this, in this man. It was a way of the demon saying, there's, there's just heaps of us here. There's many of us here. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. I mean, this man, the demon, they don't send us anywhere. We want, to, we want to stay. You know, this man, don't send them out. There was something, something about, I don't know, I don't, maybe I don't get it, perhaps. But I wonder why this man was intent on staying how he was. I mean, there's some speculation here, but something tells me that this man had resigned himself to his lot in life as a crazy man destined to be tormented. 
Maybe he'd grown comfortable with the demon's influence in his life and the lies that he had been told. Maybe this man had been com- become comfortable with the lie that, hey, mate, you deserve this. Maybe he'd grown comfortable with the lie that this is your fault. Maybe he had grown comfortable with the fact that perhaps he's not the first one in his family. Hey, the rest of your family haven't beaten this. What, think, what, do you think, what are you doing thinking that you can beat it too? You know, comfort with torment became probably, an, as, as difficult as it was, an easy road for this guy. It was predictable. It was known. He knew the tomb. He knew the routine. He knew that if he could settle with this thing, he could probably just get by. And it can become easy to get in agreement with the things that enemy says about you and I. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our fears. He knows our weak spots. And his favourite game is to play to them, to remind us of wrong, to keep us captive to our mistakes, to double down on the doubts we have about ourselves. I don't know about you, but I hear the voice of the accuser. I hear him remind me of the things I didn't get right. I hear him remind me of the the things that I've done. I hear the natter of his voice reminding me of all that I wish I wasn't. I sometimes make mistakes, falling for the traps that the accuser has set before me. And I have no gory confession that I'm about to come clean on. But sometimes I fall for the trap of anger. And sometimes I fall for the trap of escapist behaviours. Sometimes I fall for the trap of selfishness. Sometimes I fall for the trap of of pride. Sometimes I fall for the trap of self-importance that would lead me to judge other people. Sometimes, just sometimes I, I do. I think we need to stop tolerating the things that creates chaos in our lives that have the smell of death about them. And the Lord reminded me this morning, don't go comfortable with the work of the enemy. Never resign yourself, Dave. I was hearing, don't resign yourself to the entrapment of his lies. Never grow so comfortable what he has stolen. Never settle for a dark or dim lit life. And he took me to 1 Peter 2.9, for you are a chosen race, Dave. You are a chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. The Lord said to me this morning, don't settle for the darkness, but walk in the fullness of light. And now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Another telltale sign that Jesus was where he should never have been expected to be. Jews and pigs don't mix. And they begged him saying, send us out into the pigs. Let us enter them. So Jesus, and I don't know why. No, it doesn't seem like in all of my reading that anyone really knows why. But Jesus gave them permission. And Mark is driving home the point here, I think, that evil does not dictate to Jesus the terms of engagement. It was not under their own steam that these demons evacuated this man, but only under the authority of Christ. That he is the king of all. Nothing in heaven or on earth is beyond the realm of his power and authority. All things are subject to him as the psalmist writes. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field. There is not one thing that his love cannot tame. So unsurprisingly then, the unclean spirits came out and they entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. And they all rushed down that really steep bank that you saw in the picture and into the sea where they drowned. And I did have a little note in here saying, insert jokes about deviled ham here, Um, but I didn't get there. But the herdsmen fled and they told the city and in the country and all the people came to see what had happened. News had spread quickly. The farmers all went back to their cities and they said, you're not going to believe what happened to the demon-possessed guy living in the tombs. Old crazy mate, you're never going to believe what had happened. No less, they were probably all pretty fired up that generational wealth was all now um, dead in the sea and there's no more bacon. I would have been upset as well. They came and they saw that the demon-possessed man, and we're finishing up here, the one who had the legion, 
This man who was so tormented, this man who was, his life was in ruins. I mean, it doesn't get any worse really than for what this guy is experiencing. It was a horrific existence. But in this interaction with Jesus, as Jesus calmly just says, hey, come, come, on, come on out of him, come, just come out. And Jesus gave permission for these things and they became disembodied spirits that floated through the air and got into these 2,000 pigs and they all went. And here is the man now on the flip side of an encounter with Jesus. He's sitting there. He's clothed and in his right mind. And let's stand together. I feel like the, the Lord wants to take us to this place of healing where we consider all of the lies of the enemy, where we consider what he has perhaps stolen from our lives, as we think perhaps of moments of torment, as maybe even we think about how we might be tormented in mind, body, spirit now, and having a vision of this man who has been completely set free by Jesus. As he, he, he he was running day and night, chaos, surrounded him but here he is sitting at the feet of Jesus that at one time he was completely naked denuded of all dignity denuded of his humanity living like a wild animal but somehow there was a wardrobe change in the midst of this encounter and no longer was this man naked and vulnerable and exposed to the world but the Lord had clothed him And he was in his right mind. I mean, we're talking about the most insane dude in Scripture. It doesn't get more insane than this demon-possessed man. Entirely out of his mind. Completely insane. But the Word tells us he is in his right mind. He's sitting at Jesus' feet. And, you know, I wonder what is happening in that conversation. I'd love to know. Was Jesus giving him his own little personal sermon? You know, was Jesus just sitting there with him, reminding him, of all of the truth about who he is as a child, loved, chosen, called, hand-selected by the king, saying, hey, mate, I know the road has been tough. I know that the, the, the father of lies, the accuser, the enemy, he got into your space and he went wild. He had a field day with your heart and with your mind. But son, let me remind you that you are loved. You've been set free from all of this. And perhaps this is the work that you've been pleading with the Holy Spirit to do in your life, to be found in a place where there is no longer chaos, but sitting in presence. That maybe you have felt like it's been, you've been denuded by the enemy, the sense of dignity has been taken as he keeps reminding you of the things, who you're not, the things you've done, the if only I had have done differently. All of those insidious, small, conniving ways, sinister things that he gets into our heads and reminds us. You know, maybe there's just chaos of the mind, you know, not to the extent of old mate. But just your mind can't settle, can't rest, can't be at peace right now. But again, I look at this man sitting with Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And we see a complete transformation of this man. And I must have faith to believe that the Holy Spirit meets us here this morning. Because Jesus, he he calmed the storm in the sea. And in this, he calmed another storm. This time in a body and in a mind and in a spirit. You know, we've seen that he has authority over the physical elements of the world. But in this story, we see he has authority over our hearts. And so for where there is chaos and where there is hurt and where there is confusion, where there is clarity, where there is what feels like insanity, where there is depression, where there are anxious thoughts, where there is worry, where there are lies that have been believed, where there is a toll that is being taken on your mind, on your body, on your sleep, I believe the Lord wants to restore and bring peace to the chaos this morning that he would take like what he did with this man. A man so tormented, a man so out of control, a man so dehumanised and restored to him dignity, restored to him beauty, restored to him truth. And so only you know, I guess, the torment that you're feeling right now. 
And maybe you're not. And uh, please don't hear me. We, we don't all, always be feeling torment. But there are, as I said, small and big ways the enemy will just get in there and, and speak to us and try and deceive us. Let's ask the Lord that he would silence the voice and the work of the enemy and that he would restore to us peace. Father, we give you this moment right now and just invite your Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts. Father, knowing that at times there is an inner chaos that is created by the demons who want to lie to us and steal from us and tell us all the things we're not. And we're not oblivious to that. We recognize that. But Jesus, we stand on the authority of your word that says you have the power over all things. That as we have sung, the enemy has been defeated. The death could not hold you down. That the resurrection is the evidence that we need to know that you have authority and power over all things, over all evil, over every evil influence and demon of this world. You have the authority that it is only by your voice, Jesus, that they respond. And so, Lord, I ask that you would command the things in our lives now with the, the strength of your voice, with the calmness of your voice, that you would just tell the enemy to go, to get out, to flee. That Jesus, speak to them. If there's any among us, if there's any lingering around your church, just tell them to get stuffed, Jesus. The enemy's not welcome here. The enemy's not welcome in our families. The enemy's not welcome in my life. The enemy's not welcome in any life in this room. The enemy's not welcome in our children's lives. The enemy's not welcome in our young people, in our youth, in their lives. Jesus, by your power and by your authority, return to us the peace, Jesus, that we see in your word this morning. Restore to us that place of sitting in your presence. Restore to us being clothed in righteousness, as your word says. Clothe us with all that is your kingdom, Jesus. And restore our minds. Restore our thoughts. May they be holy and pure, not corrupt. Heal us, Lord. Heal us, I pray. Father, perhaps show us where we're tolerating just the work of the enemy, where we're perhaps just entertaining some of those lies where we've grown comfortable with our affliction. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just cause us to be intolerant of those things. Father, we'd be intolerant of the ways of death in our lives. And then we'd say yes to the work of the Spirit who is renewing and bringing all things back to glory. That Jesus, your kingdom come in our lives as it is in heaven with all the healing, all the peace, all the love, all the joy, all the fullness, all the beauty, all the truth, all the dignity. And Father, may we be found sitting at your feet, clothed in the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Amen.